turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 11. We'll be looking this morning at verses 37 through 54. Let's give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and he reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice in the love of God, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering." As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit alive in us. Open our eyes, O oh God, that we may behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Make us more like Jesus. And O oh God, minister to our hearts. Help us, help us, O oh Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Face the music. Most of us have heard that phrase that's saying before, face the music. It's used when someone needs to confront or to accept the unpleasant consequences of their actions. For example, if you max out your credit card on a lavish vacation, 
you will face the music when the bill comes and you cannot afford to pay it off. Like most sayings, this one has a complex origin story, but here's the one that most agree on. It's told that there was a person of great wealth and influence who wanted to be in the king's imperial orchestra. The only problem was as he didn't have any skill. He couldn't play a note, yet he leveraged his power such that the conductor allowed him to be a part of the orchestra. In fact, invited him to sit in the second row, put a flute in his hand and pretend to play along. And that's what he did. He went through all the motions of playing, but he never made a sound. This deception went on for two years until one day the king replaced that conductor with a new one. And on the new conductor's first day, he demanded that every single instrumentalist perform a private audition before him so that he could test their worthiness to be in his orchestra. As you can only imagine, the time came for the deceiver to face the music. And it did not go well for him at all. In our passage this morning, the time has come for the religious leaders of Jesus' day to face the music. In words that some commentators have called, quote, the most scathing criticisms that Jesus ever spoke these Pharisees and lawyers, oftentimes called scribes, right? Scribes and Pharisees, Pharisees and lawyers, they're here called to account for their raging spiritual hypocrisy, for their overzealous, their ill-informed, their life-choking, their spirit-quenching perversion of God's law from something that was meant to give life. They've turned it into something more like shackles and chains that drag people down to the pit of hell. But these words, these words from Jesus, as stark as they are, are more than a rebuke for his day. They are words that should resonate in every heart that seeks to follow him. These are words that challenge us and motivate us to do more than pretend to play as Christians. But instead, it calls us to play the music of true and godly faithfulness, which we can do if the spirit indeed dwells within us. One of my favorite pastors and commentators calls this passage heart surgery, heart surgery. So to help us comprehend this heart surgery that Jesus is performing in this passage, I want us to approach it in the following manner. I wanna give us a roadmap to follow. First, I'm going to quickly outline the structure of the passage Second, and I will briefly explain the setting of the passage. To understand what's happening here, we need to know the structure and the setting. Third, and then this will be the bulk of the sermon today, I will explain the six woes that Jesus pronounces, the six woes. And then finally, I'll wrap things up with 
what I believe is a simple response to our own spiritual hypocrisy. So let's begin with the structure of the passage. And the structure follows a very straightforward outline. It begins uh, with verses 37 through 41, which I already read. And this makes up the setting of the passage, okay, which we'll talk about in a minute. And contained uh, therein within this setting is the central theme that Jesus is addressing, the very central thing he's coming at. You can see it there again in verse 39. He says, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. So continuing from there with the structure, verses 42 through 44 contain the first three woes, and these are the woes against the Pharisees. Then in verse 45, uh, we encounter an objection from one of those lawyers or scribes who is present. You remember, you saw it there. I even heard some of you uh, chuckle a little bit. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also, he blurts. Out. And then what follows in verses 46 through 52 are the second three woes. And these are the woes against the lawyers or the scribes. Finally, in verses 53 through 54, we see the response, how these leaders respond to Jesus. It's a response that continues. It's a response that even intensifies until its culmination at the day of his crucifixion. You might remember in chapter nine, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And from that point on, it was increasing opposition. And here's where it really heats up. So that's the structure, the setting, three woes, objection, three woes, response. So let's move on then to that setting. The setting of these verses go far before this. It actually goes all the way back to chapter I think almost eight weeks ago in our sermon series, you may remember that a lawyer, a teacher of the law, okay, the lawyers were not of what we think of lawyers today, but they were theological experts, maybe call them the seminary professors of the day. One of these experts had come to Jesus to test him, and he came to him with a question. Do you remember the question? What one thing must one do to inherit eternal life? And what follows from that point, that question to now, is an intricately woven account by Luke of Jesus' words and actions that serve to make a clear distinction between two types of people. Those who rely on the wisdom and understanding of men and those who receive the things of God with the faith of a child. Remember 1021? Probably don't have it committed to memory, so just flip back a couple of pages, and let's see what Jesus says there. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, the things regarding eternal life, from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father. For such was your gracious will. And what follows is this lawyer comes to him. And Luke weaves these together to show these two pictures. So I hope you see this. We've now come full circle. 
It all begins with a lawyer and it ends with a lawyer as well. So we find Jesus in verse 37 being invited to the home of a Pharisee and he went. I find that very encouraging, right? Jesus is willing to sit with anyone and share a meal with anyone. He came to eat with sinners and tax collectors, right? Uh, He came uh, to be with them and so he goes to dine with this Pharisee. And as we can tell, there's other guests there too. But Jesus does something that astonishes everyone, not just the Pharisee uh, who's mentioned here. It would astonish everyone. And what does he do? He doesn't wash his hands. All the parents are like, oh, right? He doesn't wash his hands. Now, this isn't a case of bad hygiene or bad manners. Jesus is purposefully doing this to take a stand. You see, these religious leaders really believed that cleanliness was next to godliness, but not cleanliness in relation to personal hygiene or how well one's room looks, but rather to ceremonial purity. For these, before they had anything to eat, they would go through this elaborate cleansing ritual of pouring water over their hands. They believed that doing this would remove the defilements contracted, right, that they got by their contact with a sinful world. They were washing the sin away from their hands. Listen, and I'm gonna read it for you how it's explained in the Mishnah, which is a a Jewish collection of extra biblical oral traditions, okay? And I quote, see if you can follow along. The hands are susceptible to uncleanness and they are rendered clean up to the wrist. How so? If he poured the first water over the hands as far as the wrist and poured the second water over the hands beyond the wrist and the latter flowed back to the hands, the hands are clean. If he poured the first and the second water over the hands beyond the wrist and they flowed back to the hands, the hands remain unclean. If he poured the first water over one of his hands and then changed his mind and poured the second water over both his hands, they are both unclean. If he poured the first water over both his hands and then changed his mind and poured the second water over one of his hands, his one hand becomes clean. If he poured water over one of his hands and rubbed it on the other hand, it remains unclean. If he rubbed it on his head or on the wall, it is clean. It keeps going. I don't think you want me to keep reading, though. Did you catch all of it, though? Made made sense, right? That's why he teaches with me overseas. Jesus is having none of it. He's having none of it. He just goes and sits at the table. This is why he says what he does in verse 39. Why he strikes the match that sets the blaze. You see, these men have become really good at cleaning the outside of the cup, but the inside of it remains filthy. Wash the hands all you want, but your heart remains filthy, full of all kinds of greed and wickedness, Jesus says. I think Jesus is witnessing what one could call a prime case study on how to miss the point something that he makes clear in his words in verse 40. Look there, he says, you fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? This truth, as we'll see, such foolishness extends far beyond these men. You can see it even to this day. So we have the structure and the setting in mind. 
Let's move on now to the bulk of the passage, to the six woes that Jesus pronounces here. You probably caught the word six times, woe. Uh, You can think of a woe as a proclamation of judgment. This isn't fluffy Jesus, okay? This is Jesus proclaiming judgment, which he did come to do, to proclaim judgment, and he proclaims it against them. I like how commentator Tabidi Anyabwile says it. He says it this way, a woe was designed to make the people go, whoa. In this passage, these six woes not only serve as judgments, listen, I believe they're mirrors. Mirrors that reveal the uncleanness of spiritual hypocrisy. Spiritual hypocrisy that eats away at the joy of knowing and following God just the same way that cancer eats away a body from the inside out. As I've already said, these mirrors aren't just for Pharisees and lawyers. They're mirrors for each and every one of us here this morning too. So the first woe comes in verse 42. You can see it there. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Here Jesus is calling out the Pharisees' obsession with small things, the small things of the law at the expense of the greater things of the law. So the Pharisees were very meticulous with the example here is the tithe, right? They went even as far as tithing from small herbs that they weren't required to. That wasn't even part of it, but they said, no, we gotta do that too. And you can just picture them, right? With their sharp blades, meticulously cutting away a 10th of a little bitty leaf, right? Can you just picture it? I gotta get this right. We gotta get this right. So much is lost there. They lose the joy of giving generously, but what else did they lose? They fail to love God and others as the law had called them to do. Listen to how J.C. Ryle summarizes it. He says, they were scrupulous to an extreme about small matters in the ceremonial law, and yet they were utterly regardless of the simplest first principles of justice to man and love toward God. In all their activity, the Pharisees were not defending the weak. They were not protecting the poor. They were not welcoming the stranger. They were not helping the widow. They were not adopting the orphan or any other thing that the Bible calls true justice. What about us? What about us? Are we also guilty of keeping the letter of the law in one or two minor areas of obedience while at the same time neglecting or ignoring the bigger things that matter more? Do we perhaps love being right about something more than we love loving God and loving others? The second woe comes in verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees. For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. You see, these leaders were always jockeying for a better position. The ones with the pristine hands and precise tithes were given priority seating in the synagogue. 
the better one's reputation, the closer he set to the front. It's not like it is now where everyone wants to sit at the back, right? No one would sit at the front. Everyone wanted to sit at the front. In fact, a few privileged ones even got to sit facing the congregation. If you don't know our own history as a country, it was like this in many of the early colonial churches, like Boston's famous Old North Church. I've visited there. Uh, The box pews near the front were reserved for the families of the most prominent men in the city. In fact, their names were on there, reserved seating, even at the church. The Pharisees would have loved that just as much as they also loved their elaborate greeting rituals. These sayings and honorific tributes that were received in addition to a simple hello friend or shalom, right? Hello friend, most high and revered and esteemed professor of the law of God, keeper of, and just imagine on and on and on. That's how they love to greet one another, to proclaim their titles and their man-made glory. Again, this is hypocrisy. It's a craving to be recognized for spiritual accomplishment and spiritual prominence, the very opposite approach to the one that Jesus came to model for us. He, he gave up everything. He humiliated himself unto death. What about us? What about us? Do we obsess over outward accomplishments and prominence? We live in a very competitive culture. Does that carry over into our spiritual lives as well? Okay, the third will comes in verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. According to the book of Numbers, 1916, anyone who touched a grave was ceremonially unclean for seven days. Because of this, the Israelites were usually very careful to whitewash their graves so that people would notice them and avoid them. So what Jesus is doing is he's making not only a comparison, he's making a condemning comparison. He calls these Pharisees like unmarked graves. Not just unclean inside like a dirty cup, but also dead inside, like a box of rotting human remains. Without even knowing it, these Pharisees, Jesus says, were like spiritually hypocritical zombies, spreading their uncleanness through their corrupting influence upon anyone who came into contact with them. You see, their reputation for holiness caused many people to follow them. But in a crushing blow of irony, the zeal for others' cleanliness was resulting in the opposite. It was resulting in spiritual defilement. So what about us? Are we also guilty of trying to be one thing on the outside while on the inside spiritually rotting away? Are we also unknowingly spreading spiritual defilement? The fourth woe comes in verse 46. 
Some would say he asked for it, so he gets it. Woe to you also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. See, these lawyers, they were the epitome of legalism, heaping burdens upon people while themselves ignoring those burdens altogether. So, for example, as it relates to work on the Sabbath, this is something that a prominent lawyer or scribe had written. And I'm going to quote this for you, too. It's not as long as the other one, but, well, you'll see. A man may not carry an object. Okay, he's talking about the Sabbath, right? This is a regulation for the Sabbath, so defining work. A man may not carry an object in his right or left hand, in his bosom or on his shoulder. However, he may carry it on the back of his hand or with his foot or with his mouth or with his elbow or in his ear or in his hair or in his wallet carried mouth downwards or between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe or in his sandal. That was clear. Did you catch that? You see, they, they thought they were being helpful. They were intended to help people follow God's law, but all, all they did was keep on more burdens. You see, they were so complicated. So complicated that no one understood them. But who did? The experts understood them. And the experts who really understand the stuff, what else do they know? Loopholes. They had access to all kinds of loopholes because they were writing the rules. And they were able to bypass the heart of the law altogether. I'll illustrate this for you very simply, very succinctly, and very quickly in case somebody's listening. Think of it like IRS regulations. The better you know them, oftentimes the less you have to pay. Moving on. What about us? What about us? Are we holding people to standards beyond the plain teaching of Scripture? In our attempt to give more grace, are we instead laying down more law? Fifth woe comes in verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. You see, these Jewish leaders were building these wonderful monuments, right? The tombs of the prophets. They're architectural tributes to these prophets and their ministries. But Jesus turns that whole thing on its head in verses 48 through 51. So to be brief, I'll simplify his argument this way. Uh, he's telling them, your fathers, your ancestors killed them, so you must approve of what your fathers did. They killed them, you're building their tombs. You're just capping off the work that they began. You're keeping up their tradition. You see, from Abel to Zechariah, from the first to the last prophet of the whole Old Testament, what did the people do? What did the fathers of Israel do? They rejected the divine message from God. And guess what they're doing right here? They're doing the very same thing, even down to what's gonna happen towards the very end of the gospel account. 
They're going to kill the very Son of God sent from heaven. What about us? Are we also following in their footsteps? Do we honor the greatest prophet, Jesus Christ, by obeying his word? Or do we dishonor him by openly denying it? One more, sixth and final, comes in verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. These are teachers of the law, teachers of the word of God. They were called to shepherd people to salvation. They can't save them, but they shepherd them through the teaching of the word. But instead, they had taken the key and they were in danger of failing to enter into eternal life themselves. And through their teaching, they were leading others away by rejecting Jesus, by rejecting Jesus as they're doing right here and as they will continue to do. They're rejecting the key the way, the truth, the life, the only way by which someone can come to the Father. They're throwing Jesus, they're throwing eternal life away. What about us? What about us? What are we doing with the key? Are we openly professing Jesus and Jesus alone? Jesus, only Jesus is the way to the Father. Are we saying that and are we living it? Or do we live as if something else altogether is true? Talk about some heavy hitting, right? Wow. Like crushing blows from a heavyweight boxer, Jesus, he comes out swinging, swinging with his scathing rebukes of spiritual hypocrisy. Can you imagine that room? Can you imagine the tension in that room? I think it's probably like the same tension we feel in our own hearts. I mean, everyone in that room has been offended in some way. And I'm sure every one of us in our flesh can find offense too. But as I bring us to a close here with this simple response, I want you to see that what has just happened in these verses, it's very reminiscent of another passage in the Old Testament. Back in Isaiah chapter five, God pronounces six woes against the wickedness of the people of Israel. And they're very similar. They're woes against their rejection of his word and their rejection of his ways. Six woes there in Isaiah 5. Six woes here. Those of you who have studied numbers in the Bible, you might be asking a question. Where's the seventh? Right In the Bible, things often come in seven. Six is incomplete, unholy, right? So is there a seventh and missing woe? I think is a good question to ask. And maybe none of you came asking that, so I'll put that question in your mind because I intend to answer it. Is there a seventh and missing woe? There is in Isaiah. 
The seventh woe comes in the next chapter. In Isaiah chapter six, verse five, where the prophet, after seeing that great vision of God in his temple, what does he say? Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah knew that in God's eyes, he was just as guilty as anyone else. So rather than be offended by what God had said about his sin and his spiritual hypocrisy, what did he do? He repented. He threw the woe upon himself and he was saved. That's the simple response of faith to spiritual hypocrisy. When we're confronted with sin, when convicted by the Holy Spirit, when we're called to face the music of our own unrighteous harvest, we must do one thing, simply cast ourselves upon the mercy of the Lord. We have to abandon any pretense of self-righteousness. So the offense is upon you, oh God, and I trust you, Jesus, and only you, Jesus, for salvation and life. But listen, make no mistake, there's a seventh woe in our text today as well. It's there. It's foreshadowed in verses 53 and 54, which we read earlier. It's carried out in the rest of the gospel account, and it's brought to consummation with the chilling words spoken by these same types of leaders in Matthew chapter 27, verse 25. Pilate finally gives in to the crowds who are calling for Jesus to be crucified. And you may remember that after Pilate declares his innocence of Jesus' blood, remember he says, this blood is not on my hands. Do you remember how the people responded? Pharisees, lawyers, others, how did they respond? Let me quote it for you. His blood be on us and on our children. Woe is us. Has a more woeful thing ever been spoken? His blood be on us and our children. What arrogant pride. So let me ask you, what is your simple response to spiritual hypocrisy? My name is Pastor Dan and I'm a hypocrite. What is your response? I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching to myself. Will I, will you, like Isaiah, pronounce woe upon ourselves now while there's still time and in faith and repentance seek to honor Jesus with all of our life and keep going there because he welcomes us to go there and he forgives us and he restores us. Will we keep going there? Or will you and I, like these Pharisees and lawyers, are we just gonna get offended? Ignore the rebuke of Jesus with disbelief and pride and then find ourselves on the last day bearing the fruit of such words. 
when Jesus proclaims the final judgment, the final judgment which will send people to eternal death in hell. What will be our response? What will your choice be this day? Pray the Lord would help each of us to respond in faith and in repentance, just like Isaiah did. Woe is me. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins?